Welcome to Design Your Life in Business, the podcast for leaders by Bright Mind Consulting Group. We give you the necessary tools to help you become the architect of not just your business, but your life too. I'm your host, Javon Wooden. Hey, what's going on, Bob? How you doing, man? Javon, good, brother. How are you? I'm doing well. It's good to have you on the Design Your Life in Business podcast. I'm ready to jump right in, man. Man, let's do it. I'm excited to talk about this stuff. You know, it's not always I get a chance to talk with like-minded people. You know, sometimes I jump on a show and I'm not sure if I hit it off with the host, but I feel like you and I got something good. So let's do it. Absolutely. I feel the same, man. So we're going to go right in with the first question. Who is Bob DePasquale? You might see on the title there, some people call me the generosity guy. I don't want to make it seem like I'm some expert in being generous, but it's something that's really important to me. So I like to consider myself someone who loves to chase really hard after things that are meaningful in life. And my parents always taught me when I was younger to fight for something. And I've taken up the fight for generosity in the past 20 years of my life. And I feel like it's going pretty good, but it's always a battle. So that's who I would say Bob is. And if you want to know more about me and just what I like to enjoy, I'm a pretty simple guy. You know, I like sports. I like watching live sporting events, hanging out with my family and doing good work. That's my life. Hey, man, we sound alike. You know, I love the same things. So, but I got a question, like what life events made you so focused on being generous? For me, I have a pretty crazy story and it really revolves around the thoughts and ideas of one gentleman. Now, depending on how much time we have, I'll share the whole story for you. But it's one of those things where, you know, transformation happens, but it's not an overnight type of thing. I think a lot of people experience in their lives over time, you realize that your experiences really shape who you are. And for me, I have one specific period of time in my life that was really impactful, but it's honestly taken me, as I mentioned a moment ago, a couple of decades of really working through that to make it to kind of get to where I'm at today. So, you know, I'd love to share that story. And, but ultimately, I think it's really important that we understand in our lives that certain things happen, but it doesn't mean we have to understand every, we don't learn all the lessons right away. It takes time. It's a journey. And you got to understand what you've been through over a period of years and decades to really get to where you might be at today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's sometimes you're in it and you're like, why the hell is this happening? I can't see the lesson. This sucks. Right. So I get it. So don't hold back, man. Let us know the story, because I think it's really important for the listeners to understand, like, you know, what gets you to come full circle to focus specifically on generosity, because it's not really some, a word we hear often. You know, we hear compassion and kindness and all those. But generosity in and of itself is different. So let us know the story, man, on what sparked that. Yeah, absolutely. So let me start when I was 18. My life up to that point, I really couldn't have many complaints. I loved growing up, you know, in my town here in South Florida. For the most part, I was born in New York, but I wanted to go back to New York for college. And I don't know about you, Javon, but when I was 18, I felt like I was invincible. I didn't think. <laughs> we all had that feeling. <laughs> right? Everyone's got that. You're listening out there and you're older than 18, you will probably remember when you were 18 and you felt like nothing could take you down. And so I went off to college expecting for to get three things. One, an education, two, an opportunity to play football, and three, chance to get to know my family a little bit better that I moved away from when I was just three years old. So I didn't know my cousins that well. And I like to think my parents probably hoped or thought that maybe the education was number one on that list. I'm not so sure it was, (laughs) but I went up there with those three intentions. And I was in training camp playing football. And in a really short period of time, 
only one of the first couple few days of practice, I thought I had a pulled groin muscle. And something else I'll ask people about, or you have to did you ever pull a groin muscle before? Man, I have. I've had so many other injuries and it sucks. I can tell you, the listeners, it's terrible if you never did it. So don't do it. Oh, yeah. I would never wish that. I don't even play sports because of that. I don't play sports right now because of that. So, yeah, you can't stand, sit, twist, no less run down a football field with a pulled groin muscle. It's really, really debilitating. It's one of those muscles you don't realize you use it so much. It's more of the butt of the joke a lot of times. But in reality, it's a very, very important muscle. So anyway, I thought I had this pulled groin muscle. And I was doing these rehab exercises because I really, I couldn't practice at all. And my rehab exercises that the trainers would have me do, well, I would sit on this three-wheeled stool. And on this three-wheeled stool, I would have to shimmy across this training room. Now, a college training room is a little bit different than a high school training room. I mean, there's there might be 75, 80 more or more people there on a given morning getting ready for training camp practice. So let's say it's 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. And so I would assume... Part of the exercise or why, the reason why they had me do that is because I had to dodge people just to slide across the room. And I suppose it was supposed to strengthen my hip and groin muscles. I, I don't know. But all I know is that it wasn't working. I'm sorry. I'm just picturing you like sliding across on this. Yeah, stool. yeah. Picture me. Here I am, <laughs> the freshman kid trying to prove himself to his teammates and his coaches. And the trainers have him sliding across the room on a stool. I look like a four-year-old probably. And it just wasn't working. And so the head trainer one day, and he's not a big guy. He might have been 5'6", 140 pounds soaking wet. And the way that he would get people's attention is he would have to stand on top of something like a small box. And he'd have to yell across the room. And he one day he cupped his hands and he was like, Bobby. They called me Bobby at the time. And he was like, you got to get back out on the field. Quit being a weakling. And bro, when the head trainer calls you out, calls you a weakling in front of all your new coaches and teammates, you kind of feel like a loser. So here I am, this 18-year-old kid thinks I'm invincible, and now the, the head trainer is calling me a weakling. And I had a more private meeting with the guy a little bit later and said, listen, Rick, you know, I appreciate you pushing me, but this thing's not working. Like, something's not right. He's like, all right, I'm going to send you to a doctor. So week and a half or so, I'd have to drive around. Now, I'm 18 years old. I'm by myself on Long Island in New York here. But technically an adult, I'm driving around to all these different doctor's appointments by myself. And then I get in the doctor's appointment and I'm filling out medical history and insurance information, stuff that's way over my head. I mean, I, you know, I'm 18. I know how to play football and hang out with my friends. Like, that's about it. Right. And eat. Yeah, and eat. Exactly. And anything else beyond that was, you know, way over my head. So it was a really, really rough time for me. And I would spend like hours in these appointments, not to mention filling all the stuff out, but then I would go back and they would run all these tests on me. And when I had CAT scans, ultrasounds, MRI, sonograms, you name it, every test in the book to figure out what was going on with me. So finally, I remember it was supposed to be my last appointment, or at least I thought at the time. And my parents were flying up this day. They had planned this trip months in advance to come up for my first ever college football game. Now, we knew I wasn't playing in the game at this point, but this was a Thursday and I had an appointment in the morning. And I went in there and I expected to be in there for a couple hours again. I walked in the office and like 30 seconds later, they called me back. Not even, I didn't even have a chance to sit down. They said, you know, Robert DePasquale, come back. You know, so they called me. I, I went into the office. I sat down at the desk in the office and just a, less than a minute later, the doctor comes in and everything's moving really fast, you know, abnormally because I'm used to being in these appointments for hours. And he sits down at the desk and he looks me in the eye and says, Bobby, I just want to let you know you have cancer. And I was like, what? 
And like my jaw hit the desk. I was blown away. I didn't know what to say. And the only thing I remember him saying is, don't panic. We're going to hook you up with an oncologist and we'll figure out a treatment plan for this. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't even know what an oncologist is. No less, how do I internalize the fact that I'm 18 years old, supposedly invincible in my mind, but I have cancer. So I'm in shock. I walk out of the doctor's office. Now, it was like divine timing. I can't explain to you how perfect or imperfect this was, depending on how you want to look at it. But my phone rang as soon as I walked out of the building. Like the moment I stepped outside, my phone rings. And it's my mom. My parents were flying that morning to come to New York. And she's like, hey, you know, I expected to get your voicemail because I thought you'd be in the appointment, but just wanted to let you know we've landed. And by the way, since I got you, how did the appointment go? And I was like, uh, about that appointment, mom. And I had to tell her, you know, what the doctor told me. And Javon, I, I'll never forget that moment. I mean, it was dead silent on the other end of the phone. But at the same time, I could just feel my mom screaming inside, like my son, like what, what's going on? And the only thing I remember hearing, though, is my dad on the other side, because he was in the car with her. And he was yelling himself, like, Susan, Susan, what's going on? And my mom's name is Susan. And and so they were in the car on the way to my uncle's house, my mom's brother, who still lived in New York, and uh, we were all going to meet there. So we met back at my uncle's house. And I just, I mean, I hadn't seen my parents in a month. It's the longest I had ever been away from home. And uh, we just gave each other a big hug and we shed some tears and said some prayers and just kind of try to figure out what was going on right now. And so a couple of days passed and my uncle's best friend on Saturday morning. So now this is the day of the game that obviously I wasn't playing in at this point, but my uncle's best friend comes over to his house that morning and he's there for like a minute and he walks over to my parents and I'll, I'll never forget this either. He pulls his keys out of his pocket and he sh like shoves them in my parents' face. It was, it was almost like aggressive. And he's like, Susan, Bob, here you go. Take my car for as long as you could possibly need it. I can't imagine what you're going through with your son right now. And my parents were just blown away by that. And I was thinking to myself, this guy's giving us his car. He doesn't even know, know us. Like, who are we? And he's just going to give us his car for as long as we need it. Wow, that's the most generous thing someone's ever done for my family. I mean, so could you imagine that? I mean, he just gave us his car. It was incredible. Yeah, he just walks in and just comes and hands you the keys. Probably doesn't really even know that well, but he just knew what you were going through and knew your parents were dealing with it. That is what you consider generosity. So would you say at that point, that's when it really sparks you to say, you know, what, I want to carry on to be this generous after I beat this cancer? No, actually, it didn't. I was so blown away. Like, I didn't even know what to say. And he was there for maybe 15 minutes. And then he just up and left. Like, he was just gone. He said goodbye to my aunt and uncle and was out of there. And we were like, wow, I mean, who is this guy? Like, I had to ask my uncle. I was like, is this like a, is this a joke? <laughs> so we did end up speaking with an oncologist that Friday before that. And he told me to, to stay enrolled in some classes. Like, I couldn't just you know, quit. If I was going to stay in New York to get treated, which is what we wanted to do, because we knew the best doctors for cancer would be up there. And he's like, you can't just drop all your classes. So I ended up going to class the next week and, uh, you know, with Tim's car. So the second day, so it was Tuesday, my second ever day of classes. I come out of my class and I went to the cafeteria to grab something to eat. It's right by the hall where my class was. And I'm sitting there now, 
you remember those old school tube televisions? Oh, heck yeah. Right? So not like a flat screen like the one behind me here, but... The fat, yeah, just huge. <laughs> yeah, well, there was an, like a small one, an eight-inch one hanging from the, a bracket of a wall in the ceiling in the cafeteria at my school there. And the news is on. Now, you know, like an eight-inch TV on the wall is hard to see to begin with, and I'm trying to watch television just to entertain myself while I eat something. And the news is on. Now, I don't watch the news. I don't know the news station in New York anyway, because I don't live there. But the news is on, and I'm watching it, and all of a sudden, a plane hits one of the Twin Towers. And I'm like, wow, that's a horrible accident. So I called my dad, and I said, Dad, are you watching the news? He's like, yeah, yeah, I got this on. And I saw this plane just hit one of the buildings in New York City. And we were talking for like a minute or so. And then all of a sudden, bam, a second plane hit the other Twin Towers in what we now know as the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And my dad's like, well, that's not an accident, son. You better come back to your, your uncle's house. So I hopped in the car. I sprinted out of there. The breakfast burrito that I was eating is probably still there. I just left everything and I hopped in the car. Now, subsequently, I actually have a master's degree in broadcast journalism and I worked in radio for a period of time. But what would normally be a 15-minute drive took me nine hours. And I listened to the whole broadcast of 9-11 as it was happening, like the whole day on AM radio, driving with the burning towers in the distance, because I remember I'm in New York now. And I ended up running out of gas in my uncle's neighborhood. Now, I can't imagine if I would have ran out of gas on the highway, who knows? But it was just the most riveting nine hours of my life. I mean, I couldn't, I can never describe it in detail. All I know is I just remember just staring. And I don't even know how I was driving, listening to this whole thing. And yeah, absolute autopilot. We ended up having to push the car into my uncle's driveway because I had ran out of gas. And we're all looking at each other. And the thought that crossed my mind was, you know, just a few days before that, we were questioning, and we still are, my own life. And if I would be around for very much longer, considering the disease that I had. But now all of a sudden, the whole world, or at least it felt like that, especially if you're up in New York at that time, it felt like all of humanity was being threatened. And I went from this 18-year-old invincible kid thinking I had the world, you know, under my control to suddenly feeling I had lost all control and life was almost over. And it turns out that we don't know how long or how much time we have here on earth. And it's interesting because we were trying to get a hold of my uncle that night, that the whole day actually, and he was supposed to fly home to New York. He was on business in Denver the night before. And finally, at about eight o'clock at night, he finally got through on the phone and said, hey, guys, you know, I'm really sorry. I bet you you've been panicking. You've been worried about me, but I'm stuck in Denver. My flight never took off, but the phones have been out and I'm glad I got a hold of you now, but just want to let you know I'm okay. And my aunt was going to hang up the phone. She was totally relieved, but he's like, hey, you know, before I let you go, I guess I got to let, you know, my friend Tim, who was at the house, you know, a few days ago, Unfortunately, he was in the towers this morning and he died. And it really just hit us like, wow, you know, here's this guy who he didn't deserve this. He just gave us his car, did one of the most, one of the nicest, most generous things we've ever heard of. And he lost his life. Now, now Tim worked for Cantor Fitzgerald, an investment bank that had their entire offices all in the North Tower there. Now, you can look at the, you can YouTube the video of Howard Lutnick. He was the president of Cantor Fitzgerald and, you know, the head honcho over there. 
And he would typically be in the office that morning, but was late, something to do with his kid in school or something like really uncharacteristically late. And he's actually one of the guys, people who survived and was running from the collapsing building on the street there, but he should have died. And it's one of the most emotional press conferences you'll ever see. But I bring that up because he was spared. Cantor Fitzgerald was known for being a very generous organization. And I could see why Tim, my uncle's best friend, fit in well there because he was known for being a very generous person. And he would say something to the effect of, you never know when your last opportunity to be generous will be. And I think a lot of people talk about you only live once. You never know when your last chance to jump off a building will be, do something really fun, do something crazy, do some travel experience or skydive, you know, crazy stuff like that. And don't get me wrong. I think we should all take advantage of those things. But his thought was, we never know when our last chance to be generous will be and to be radically generous. And it just so happened that my family was the last opportunity that he had to be generous. And you asked where that transformation came from or, you know, what point did I start thinking about generosity as something I wanted to focus on for the rest of my life? Well, I can't say that it was exactly at that moment, but it was definitely that period of time and the thought of Tim being a super generous guy and what he thought about generosity. And so Kenneth Fitzgerald would donate office space to my uncle's foundation for cystic fibrosis. And luckily no one from the office was, is typically in the office that early in the morning. So no one died in the terrorist attacks. But Tammy, who was the number one person at the foundation at the time, uh, she was also uncharacteristically late. She would typically be the only one that's in the office. And she got stuck in the subway that day, ended up surviving. But the stories that she can tell are truly amazing. So, you know, Howard Lutnick and Tammy Amaker were saved, but for whatever reason, Tim O'Brien wasn't. And we never know when that last opportunity will be. So I try to live my life by that mantra. And, you know, I'm not always perfect. I'm not always generous, but I try to take advantage of those opportunities. Man, that's such a powerful story, Bob. I mean, you went through two life-changing events in a matter of days, right? Yet you're here with the, the abundance mindset and you're not with the, the victim mentality. You're here sharing your story. What drives you to stay in that positive mindset, that abundant mindset, the mindset of giving instead of being angry, instead of feeling like the world owes you or having that, that victim mentality? Well, the two things come to mind. Number one, it's just not in my mindset. I mean, when I was diagnosed with cancer, I knew it would be hard, but I was determined that I would beat it. And I come to find out that I, other generous acts and other things in life were required for me to beat it, but that's just how I think. You know, I, I don't think, what can't I do? I think about what do I have the opportunity to accomplish? And it's a little bit, it's not as simple as what can I do? Uh, because I think what you can do is easy because you can do it. The true opposite of what can't I do with a growth mindset is the things that you have to figure out, the thing that's going to take a challenge. So that's number one. That's how my mind thinks. I guess I'm blessed to have that mindset naturally. I like to figure things out. I want to learn. Um, I love having conversations like this because I feel like I learn something every time. And so that's number one. Number two is I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility deeply in my soul and my heart to use what happened to me for positive in the world and to, to help other people. 
And so not a day goes by, Javon, where I don't think about that period of time in my life. Now, some days it's as simple as, well, that was 20 something years ago. I can't believe I'm still alive. Praise the Lord. Then there's other days where I think about it deeply. There's days like on the 9-11 every year I get emotional, you know, so it depends on how I think about it and how I work through it, but not a day goes by. This is not an exaggeration that I don't at least think about that period of time in my life just at least a little bit. And that always reminds me that whether it's my wife or my friends or other people in my family or the person on the other side of the world who heard a podcast interview with Javon, that I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility to help other people realize the value of radical generosity. So two things here. One is, what do you perceive as radical generosity? So I get this question all the time, and I love answering it because I think radical generosity means different things to different people. The one key thing that you have to understand, though, is that I like the word radical because it gets people's attention. It's a little bit of a, you know, an attention grabber, but radical doesn't mean bad. Radical doesn't mean dumb. Radical doesn't mean hasty, but I think it gets these connotations sometimes in the world because we look at the crazy things that people do and we might call them a radical. But radical, what it really means, the dictionary definition, if you look it up, and different dictionaries have different words, but essentially what it means is, is something that wouldn't be otherwise thought of naturally or initially by other people, right? So it's just a different way of thinking. So when you think about generosity, most of us might assume that generosity is giving money to somebody or even giving something else. But the idea is that you see someone in need, someone else is doing it. It's clear, it's obvious that it's the right thing to do. And those things are good, don't get me wrong. Those, you should always do the right thing and never underestimate the power of a simple, generous act. But radical generosity is truly doing something out of the ordinary or something that someone else might look at you a little funny and say, why would he do that? Just like Tim O'Brien did to my family. I mean. How many people would come over to somebody's house a couple of days after someone's diagnosed with cancer and just give them their car? Right. Not many that I know. <laughs> no, that's radical. That's not normal. And so I encourage people to not only think about or not only try to be generous when everyone else is being generous or when it's normal, but try to be generous radically in situations or in ways that the average person might not even consider. And so Radical generosity to me is taking advantage of opportunities to be generous that the average, and I hate to use the word average because I think we're all above average in certain ways. It's just a matter of what we tap into it. So maybe a better way of wording it is radical generosity is taking advantage of our own opportunity to use our gifts and skills that are above average to do something generous. I love that. So the second question I have, and thank you for sharing that, Bob. The second question is, someone struggles with generosity or even finding ways to be generous, what are some tips you would recommend for them? The first thing is understanding what's meaningful to you. I think the reason why you're generous is not for selfish gain, but I think we would all be foolish in misunderstanding the fact that there is fulfillment in generosity. And I often reference this TED Talk and my friend, Wendy Steele, who's the founder and president of an organization called Impact 100 Global. Check them out. They do great work, especially if you're a lady and 
they bring cohorts of women together to do excellent work in financial giving and also sweat equity, if you will, in the charitable space. But she has a TED talk that's probably 12, 15 years old by now. She talks about oxytocin, the bonding hormone, and how this hormone is essentially contagious. And that there's three parties in most giving generosity situations. And most of us have received a gift before. I mean, my birthday's coming up in a couple of days as we record this. I'm sure some people are going to get me gifts and it's going to feel good. I'm assuming you've gotten a gift before, right, Javon? And it feels good when someone gives you something. So it's amazing. Right. It feels <laughs> awesome, especially when it's something you need. So anyone out there who's listening to this and wants to get me a nice birthday gift, please. I want to feel that. But number two is it also feels good to give, especially if you're giving to a loved one or friends or family. But even if you're giving to someone that you don't even know, there's you also get a hit of oxytocin and there's a little bit of a bond that you get with a, between giver and receiver. It's the same hormone that women experience when they give birth. And that's the bond between mother and child. So this is scientific. This is not just me talking off cuff here. So, but the third party, so we don't realize this as much. I think we understand what it's like to be the receiver and the giver, but also the third party onlooker of a generous act receives a hit of oxytocin too. And that's why it's heartwarming when you watch something on the news or you watch an Instagram reel or a TikTok of a really generous act, someone doing something really nice. You get that feeling as well. And so my first tip for people is consider what you're uniquely capable of offering. Like what are your gifts and skills that you're best at? Like it's, I think we over, excuse me, we underestimate our capability of being generous. My research over the years has determined that humans have a natural desire to be nurturing and generous to other people. I mean, that's why if you think about it, I was 18 when I went off to college. Well, humans, you know, we are part of the animal kingdom. We have one of the longest nurturing periods for our young because it's natural human desire to care for people. Most humans stay at home at least until they're 18, right? How long does a bird stay in the nest before the mom or dad kicks them out and says, go fly, right? That's probably the, I, I don't. And not just kick them out. It's a life-threatening kick out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So my point is, when you ask about what are some tips, the first one is just to consider what you're best at. Like, where do your skills lie? Do you like talking to people? Do you have like physical skills with your hands? Can you build stuff? A friend of mine it's got to be one of the most handy people in the world. He absolutely uses that gift to be generous. Maybe you're a great listener. You know, maybe you're someone who does a really good job listening to people when they're in a time of need. Maybe you are financially wealthy. And the best way in this season of life is to give financially. I don't know. But can first consider what you could be good at. And it's good for two reasons. One, because you're good at it. So and you have that ability so you can help someone. But two, it also means that it's going to be fulfilling for you. Right. Like if you can use what you're good at and, to make, and it helps you contribute to society and a better world, like you're going to be that much more likely to do it again. And it doesn't have to be extravagant. It can be very simple. So that's the first tip. The second tip is just ask questions. I mean, some of the best sales advice in my professional career that I ever got was about asking questions and understanding what people need so that you can provide it for them. It takes people's guard down. It develops a relationship or rapport. Talk about oxytocin and bonding. There's also some of that involved in this as well. So if you ask questions to people about what they need, you know, you'd be surprised. People will be honest with you. You know, I think there's a lot of skepticism these days. I mean, I walk down the street and it's terrible in my neighborhood. And I literally have to like stop and stare at people and say, good morning or hello. 
just to get them to respond. Like people are very, very afraid to communicate. So if you can go out of your way to ask people questions and develop a relationship with them, I think you'll quickly find out two things. And I'm giving you a lot of things in Paris today, just working out well. Um, but two things happen. One is you find out what they could possibly need. And I got a million stories about this, simply asking. And then that way, you know what they need. And if you can't provide it yourself, then at least you know what they need. So you can, your act of generosity could be actually helping them find the person that can provide that for them. And then number two is when you're able to, when you develop that relationship with people and you realize or, or you become known as the connector or a generous person, it opens up a world of opportunities for you to continue to be generous because now the person that you're generous to is willing to refer you or recommend you to someone else, or they know that you have knowledge of the needs of people in the community. You know, some of my favorite people are part of communities in my life that they are known as a person to go to when you need to know something about what's going on in the group. And I don't mean like gossiping. I mean, specifically, like you can go to them and say, hey, you know, I'm really feeling like I want to help out. Who needs it? And what can I provide for them? So it also creates that too. And if you become that person, generosity suddenly becomes a way of life and a mindset more than a specific event. And one of my things that I've been living by the past couple of years, now, as I mentioned, generosity has been a power in my life for over two decades now since I was 18, but I've been working through it. And more recently, I've realized something that generosity is not an event. It's a mindset. So when you go and you give something to someone or you do something nice, that's not generosity. That's expressing your generosity. So you can't say a lot of people have given stuff to somebody before, but that doesn't mean they have a generous mindset. That just means that they were either told to, they had to, it was a, they caught lightning in a bottle and it was the perfect timing, right? That is not going to ultimately provide you long-term benefits. It's the mindset. So you really want to consider that. So anything that you can do to nurture the generous mindset and not necessarily concentrate on specifically giving one thing or creating the perfect ideal environment or Instagram worthy post of the giving that you did, that's not going to build a generous mindset over time. And so if you're just trying to get started, start building the mindset first. No, I love that. I mean, yes, it is a mindset because you have to be in an abundant mindset. You have to realize that what you're giving is not a finite resource, right? Because you're giving from, like you said, you're giving from your abilities, your capabilities. So you're pouring from a full cup, so to speak, as they say. Yeah. So thank you. I love how you talk about abundance mindset. I mean, that's such a powerful force. And it's a powerful force in your personal life, in your faith life, in your business life, like in just about every area of life. An abundance mindset is healthy. And it's not abundance, you know, greed perspective. It's quite the opposite. It's I have an abundance of opportunity, whatever area of life it is. So powerful. I love how you use that language. Thank you. I appreciate that, man. You're dropping a lot of jewels when it comes to generosity mindset. So I hope the audience is catching it. So I got a question, man. You started off in financial planning. We see it in the background if you're watching this, right? You started off your CFP ran a pretty successful firm. So what made you switch from that to speaking about mindset and generosity? So I mentioned earlier that I have a master's degree in broadcast journalism. And I don't mention that to brag on my education. 
but I spent a lot of time studying. I mean, I worked really, really hard to get that degree. And I thought I was going to work in fi- uh, sports radio the rest of my life. If I wasn't going to be an athlete and play sports, and since pretty early in my college career, I, I had to stop playing, although I did get back out on the field. But I, it became evident to me at that time that sports isn't going to be my whole life or was it likely going to be my whole life. I always kept my mind open. And while I was at the radio conglomerate that I was working for, there were some questionable you know, moral practices related to money and how they were treating some of their customers. And I had been getting recruited by a guy in the financial industry. And I put him off. One day I told him, you know, I'll call you back in six months. And I think I just said that just to get him off the phone. Well, when I realized what was going on, I had a couple of days off during the holiday season and I actually called the guy back. And I'm telling you this because I never expected to actually go into the financial world. Decent or good math student when I was younger, but I wasn't really into numbers. I was into communication. Come to find out that a lot of what we do in this profession is about communication, especially now that we have all these calculators and software and tools on the computer to do to run all the numbers. But I ended up taking the job. He wined and dined, my wife and I, and ended up recruiting me to the financial industry. Now, part of the reason why I took that job is because I, I thought to myself, man, if in the radio business, there's questionable money practices going on, I can only imagine what's going on in the financial industry. And going back to that mindset that I have about solving problems and figuring things out, it is where it got me. I said, you know what? I'm going to go into the belly of the beast. There couldn't be any more strong prevalence of financial fraud and issues and questionable practices than actually in the financial industry. So that was my thought. That's why I took the job. And come to find out, I was pleasantly surprised after years of working there that there's actually a lot of people who aren't greedy with their money. Many, many people and families that I met with over the years were extremely generous, or at least they wanted to be generous. The problem was, is there were so many messages in the world telling them that they weren't good enough, the opposite of the abundance mindset. And you talked about victim mentality before. There was a lot of people out there who I could just sense they had this amazing desire to be generous, but they weren't, they didn't believe that they were capable of. Whether that was because you had to have a gazillion dollars or you had to own a business or you had time, they just didn't have the time to be a giver. All these, in my opinion, lousy excuses. But you can't say that to people. You have to walk them through the process. So a couple of years ago, my business partner and I, what better time than during a pandemic to start a business? We actually decided to leave the firm that we worked for. And we loved working there. The people were awesome. They were an extremely generous organization. They taught me about all the financial ins and outs of generosity. I kind of deal with taxes and philanthropic planning and estate planning and all these different things. So I loved working there. But people started asking us, to really drill down and help them be as generous as they could possibly be with their money and their other resources. And so we had to, if we wanted to be able to work more time in and be compensated for that work, we had to change business models and start our own company. So that's what we did. And so, yeah, we built a successful practice or or I did for many years until my business partner joined my practice. And we worked together for many years before we decided to leave. And so we did it. We started our firm, Initiate Impact, and it's all about focusing on wealthy families, but wealthy families in more than finances. In some cases, not even their finances, but wealthy from an abundance mindset perspective. And that's why I love how you use that so much. And we work with families now. We do manage their financial resources. And we take care of all their financial transactions. But I think our, our true differentiator 
It's us helping them work through their generous mindset and their family's mission and helping them live that out, helping them act, not actually, not just give, not just cut a check to their favorite charity, but get involved. Where should they go? Should they start their own foundation? Should they travel the world to serve people? Like where do they want to go and how can they get connected with causes that are most important to them? And so that, you know, our expertise has really morphed into this giving advisor, you know, generous mindset coach type of space. And it's been really, really fun. I, I love doing this work. Yeah, I love how you combine the two, right? Finance, mindset, generosity, or the three, really. That's that's pretty awesome how you did that, man. You have a blog on your site, right? And I found it pretty interesting, man. <laughs> you have one of them talking about aiming in the middle. Can you expound on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I've written, I cannot believe it. I'm, I'm coming up on three years of weekly entries to the e-impact blog. And I started that blog before I started my current business. And the topics come from all over the place. But I love to listen to podcasts and be a guest and host. And I like to read it. Well, I like to listen to books now. I don't read as much. I'm probably guilty of being overstimulated like the rest of us. But the aiming in the middle, that entry, I can't remember how long ago I wrote that one. Probably not too long ago, maybe a couple of months or so. But I find that in today's world, everything is supposed to, is so extreme, right? We need stuff immediately. You know, our social media puts a news and information in our hands right away. And we think that in order to stand out or to be the best at something, you have to be the most extreme. I don't agree with that. And oftentimes in the generosity space, aiming in the middle is a darn good place to be. Because if you overextend yourself and you don't, and something doesn't go well, you could really, really set yourself back. But at the same time, radical generosity requires you to have some pretty aggressive intention. You can't just let it come to you either. So I think aiming in the middle is extremely important for driven people. If you're the type of person that finds yourself, you might call yourself lethargic or maybe under-motivated. You know, it may not resonate as much with you. But if you're a highly driven person and you love to get stuff done, you're a business owner, you might consider yourself a high achiever or type A personality. I think aiming in the middle is really important. Now, let me be clear. Aiming in the middle does not mean giving half effort. It's giving hard, full-on, 100% effort, but not only in way off in one extreme. It's giving full effort in a place in your life where you're, where flexibility is possible, right? Because you think about it, if you've ever heard the example, you know, you can read and there's documentaries and data about air travel and nautical travel as well. If a ship or a plane or some kind of vessel is off one degree of from their direction that they need to go, in one day, they could be, I wish I remember the statistic off the top of my head, but in a very short period of time, they can be way off. And so the farther off from center your aim is, and the faster you're going, the more, the farther off you'll be from your destination. So my point is, if you're a fast moving mind, aggressive, go-getter type of personality, you really need to be careful for this. Because if you're not, if you're a little bit more passive and you're a degree off, it may not hurt you as much. But if you're going 100 gazillion miles an hour and you're slightly off, you can get pretty far off track pretty quickly. So the idea of aiming in the middle, it's going fast. Don't try to change your personality. I would never tell someone to change the way they think and work. If that's the what motivates you and how you work, I don't want you to change. I just want you to make sure that you're not too far off course. So aiming in the middle is really, really important. And 
the people who read the e-impact blog, I, I like to call them impact makers. And the overwhelming response and support from the impact makers is that they like to go fast. They want to solve problems now. So I oftentimes I try to remind them that if you're going to go fast, you got to aim in the middle. I love that principle. It reminds me of my time in the military. We would go do land navigation. There was something called the azimuth. Now, if you know the compass, right, you got the azimuth that gets you back home, gets you back to your base where you started. So that's what it reminds me of. It's like, you know, when you take a couple degrees off, you can end up, you'd be surprised how far you off of your target. So I appreciate that whole principle of like navigation. And if you're one degree off, how far away you are. It just made me think of that, the military time. It's like you have to have a point have your goal, but also have somewhere where you can realize, you know, how far off track you are um, so you can get back on really quickly. So thank you for that aiming in the middle for sure. So we're going to wind down here and I'm going to ask you three questions that I ask every guest in our by design segment. So the first question, are you ready? Let's do it. All right. That question didn't count, by the way, Bob. <laughs> so the first question is, what has been the hardest part about designing life and business you don't need a vacation from? Oh, that I don't need a vacation from. I think the hardest part of it is managing the variables and the unknowns. I mean, I gave advice to business owners for many, many, many years. I've done it for almost 15 years now. I had done it for about 13 years before I opened my own business. And I don't want to say I thought it was going to be easy. But I figured I'd have some experience, you know, working and understanding businesses, but it's just not the same in your own business. And when you build your own business, I heard this once said, when you own your own business, you have the pleasure and the joy of being able to make every decision because you're in charge. The problem is you have to make every decision and that can get overwhelming with all the different variables. So that the hardest part has been managing everything. I don't think there hasn't been any one decision that I feel has been overly challenging. It's just the amount of them and decision fatigue can set in quickly. When you're making lots of high leverage decisions, it can be challenging. Yeah, I'm sure many of our listeners can resonate and attest to that, right? It's like everything's thrown at you. You have to do it quickly sometimes, right? So it's like, yeah, when you're working for someone else, you can be like, oh, you know what? I don't have to do this or you're on the team. But when you're the owner, the entrepreneur, especially a solopreneur, you're doing a lot right at one day. Second question is what is the best lesson you've learned from your entrepreneurial journey? Curiosity is powerful. In my previous role, I didn't really have to be curious. I was kind of just fed what we needed to know. And it was nice because I didn't have to spend too much time searching for stuff. I had to learn it, but I knew where it was. I was told where to find it. I was told what to do. I was a good soldier, if you will, to use the, the military analogy. In entrepreneurialism, it's a lot different. You got to go out and find what to do. And some of the best advice I ever got when I was writing my book was it's not about what you know, it's about what you want to know. And very similar to the business, I thought we were going to start our business and I was just going to use all my years of experience, just like I thought I was going to write a book and it was going to be basically me brain dumping for 50,000 words. Come to find out though, what's most important are the things that I've identified that I don't know that I need to in order to be successful. Major key right there. Dropping all the jewels, man. Appreciate that. <laughs> the third question is, what are three tools or tips that you would recommend when scaling a business? First one is self-awareness. And this is not, you might think this is more of a psychology thing, but it's a legitimate tool and tip for a business owner. 
to actively practice self-awareness. Because especially if you're a solopreneur and you just started a business, everything is running through your lens. And the fact is, we're all unique. I truly believe that. I talked about it earlier in this conversation that we all have a unique gifts and skill set. We also have a unique mindset. And so in a lot of ways, it can be beneficial for us to have a unique mindset. But the one way or one of the ways that it could potentially hurt you is if you don't consider other people's perspective on things. So practice, I would say at least on a weekly basis, if you can get it in daily, I might, you know, I try to do that, but at least on a weekly basis, I go over the, the rocks, the biggest rocks. I use those are the biggest goals that we have in our business. I go over those at least weekly and I try to take my own thoughts out of it and consider other people's perspective. So that's practicing self-awareness, knowing how far off you are from other people's opinions. So that's number one. Number two, a color-coded calendar. This is the best advice I ever got in business too. I can look at my calendar and in 30 seconds, I know where I'm spending my energy, what kind of day it's going to be, what kind of week it's going to be. I can tell you if I'm going to feel tired at the end of the day, if I'm going to feel energized because I have different colors in my calendar and everyone's different. You can break them down in different categories. But for me, I have, I really have five main categories, but essentially I know all of them and I have a family category. So I know that those are non-negotiable things. I family time, I will not schedule anything during those times. So that's number one. But then the other things in the calendar, you can look at your calendar immediately and see how your day is going to be. And so it's such a powerful thing. And now on Friday afternoons, I always go into Monday having already planned my week on Friday afternoon. Now there's time for flexibility. One of my blocks and colors is flex time. But the idea is that it's really easy to understand your calendar. And this is so important because I found this to be so much. Most high achieving type A solopreneur, entrepreneur, executive people, leaders in the world, people that we've been talking to that I'm assuming are listening to this podcast, most of them do not have trouble accomplishing any given task. I mean, most of us, even if we're not an expert in it, we've either found the right person to help us because we were self-aware going back to number one, or we're just, we can push through and we're strong enough and smart enough to figure it out. We have the momentum, we have the desire. But what's even more powerful than our own ability to just push through these problems is, is to understand the calendar and be able to do it efficiently, to be able to know what is that you have to do and to jump from time block to time block. And some people have heard, probably heard of good time blocking. This is like, in my opinion, like the exponential factor of time blocking. Yes, you want to be time blocked, but you also want to be color coded so that the blocks make sense in your mind and your brain just fires. It's like when I see a red block, I know that's podcasting and me, well, media in general now, like my brain gets so excited. It's like a dopamine hit before you actually get to experience the vacation. You know, like you start and your mouth starts watering before you eat dessert. It's the same concept. I get fired up because my brain is already prepared. So color code, long-winded answer, but color code number two. You're good, man. I was going to say, that's one of the things I work with with my clients because I always say you can tell a lot about a person from their calendar. Right. And as high achiever, you know, it's really easy to get sidetracked because you're like, I got so many things I want to accomplish. But when you actually have the discipline to look at the calendar and do what it says to do, it makes it so much easier, alleviates a lot of the stress 
And, you know, you end up having more energy at the end of the day than you typically would trying to figure it out on the spot. So that's great answers, man. Great tips and tools. So, Bob, you're giving a ton of information, not just in generosity, but on life and business in and of itself. So how can the people connect with you? You can find me, BobDeepasquale.com. My social links are, are there. My DMs are open, especially IG and Twitter. I love to talk with people about generosity, mindset. And then my company's websites, Initiate Impact. So check out those two websites and you can find just about everything you need to know about me there. And I hope everyone has a great day. And just consider the value of other people in your life. And if you're generous to them, it'll come back around for sure. I couldn't have said it better, man. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob DePasquale, the generosity guy himself. Thanks again for coming on, Bob. We appreciate you. Keep us sending, people. Be good. Design Your Life and Business, the podcast for leaders, is brought to you by Bright Mind Consulting Group. To find out more about Bright Mind Consulting Group and how you can become the best leader possible, visit brightmindconsultinggroup.com. Make sure you search for Design Your Life and Business on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Bright Mind Consulting Group, we cannot thank you enough for listening. 